When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This was so much more, Don, than just a funeral or a celebration of life. It really was a call for monumental change. It was a call for monumental change and for laws to be passed to help prevent this from happening again, Pamela. But I do have to say that on a personal note, and that's everyone is feeling from their hearts today watching this. When you have a funeral service or a going home ceremony, as it is called much of the time in the black community, those are usually reserved for the most intimate members of the family or loved ones. And we are getting to witness over and over on a national stage, on national and international television, the grief and the sadness and the suffering of many families across this country and most of them black families. The family today handled themselves with dignity, with grace in front of millions of people while millions of people are watching around the world. Again, this is something that is reserved for the most uh, special family members and the most intimate moments of, of, of a family. And this one is being played out in front of cameras. And it is, it's heartbreaking to watch, but we are watching along with the people there in Memphis and mm-hmm. watching along with millions around the world. So it is a sad occasion that sadly has been being played out way too often for public cameras when public cameras should not be in this type of event. Absolutely. And to drive that point home, Don, the family members there of other black victims who died at the hands of police just shine a spotlight on the magnitude of this problem that continues to happen over and over and over again. And to hear from the family members of Tyree Nichols, as you point out, so poignant, seeing Ravon Wells, the mother up there, so emotional, honoring her son and Tyree's brother, um, who said he didn't even want to speak. He hadn't planned on it, but he got up there anyway to speak. And he talked about how his brother saw life through a different lens um, than perhaps others in their community. And it just, it really um, touched me. You know, his yeah. photography fee, he was a skateboarder. He had this really full, rich life that now is taken away from him so early. And, th- and to think about the manner of his death, the way in which he died. And listen, you and I have recently both lost very close family members. Yes. And we would not want to be in front of cameras or having to deal with it publicly this way. You did not hear um, any vitriol from the family members simply recounting what they loved about their brother, their son, their loved one, saying, talking about the changes that they wanted but not calling anyone names. And I also found it, I found it very heartwarming, and I'm not sure I could have been the same way, for those family members who are saying that they in some way can forgive what happened, but mm-hmm. they won't forget. The mother said as much, saying that I feel sorry for the police officers and their families in an interview with them. I, I, I would say I don't know where that comes from, but I do know exactly where that comes from. I don't believe that I possess that level of um, faith Um, and even empathy, but they do. This comes from a deep level of faith and a belief in God and belief in the teachings that they learned 
uh, probably at the foot of their mothers and fathers as children. No, I, I think you're absolutely, you could not be more right, Don. As you point out, we both lost loved ones. And, um, you know, I know the feeling of being angry, but I cannot imagine what they're feeling, the anger they must um, have to endure just trying to process that they've lost Tyree Nichols at such a young age at the hands of police brutality in a video we have all seen that's gone um, worldwide. And yet you're right. They never chose to use to call them bad names or anything like that. They just want change. As you heard from Rovan, she wants to make sure that something positive comes out of Tyree's loss. And that is why they have been so focused during the service on the George Floyd and Policing Act. Um, and it is clear that that is they want something to come from this. Don, and that is what it is. But it, it is amazing and beautiful to see them and the amount of dignity and courage they showed up on that stage. And, you know, you spent time in Memphis last week. It was just last week, Don, and the location was a focal point of today's ceremony, we know. And, you know, it is worth noting that this is also the same city where Martin Luther King Jr. lost his life, where this tragedy not, happened. Not only, Pamela, the same city, this is the same sanctuary where Dr. King, almost 55 years ago, gave his last sermon, that famous mountaintop speech. This was the night before he was assassinated. And as um, Reverend Sharpton pointed out, not far away in Memphis from the Lorraine Motel, the balcony where Dr. King was assassinated. So the symbolism mm -hmm. in what is happening here today should not go unnoticed. It is monumental that the same city where Dr. King fought for civil rights and human rights. Here we are, 55 years after his assassination, and we have people fighting for the same rights and similar rights in this country. That should not go unnoticed. It should not. I want to bring in on that note, CNN's Ryan Young, who is live for us in Memphis. Ryan, what does today's ceremony mean for a city that has really been grieving? I can honestly tell you there are people who wanted to be here to wrap their arms around this family. They cannot believe the strength this family has shown over the last few weeks. And as you guys were talking about the mother and the father and their kind words and sort of just their, their peace in this moment, you got to think about the sisters and even that poem that really shook a lot of us out here as we were standing here. The pain that this family has had to go through um, in the spotlight, the grace that they've been able to have. Um, the fact that they called for peace even after this video was released, I think a lot of people in the city are grateful and thankful to them for keeping the temperature a certain level. But when you add all this together, something that you said, you guys just talked about, pain is something that unites all of us. Whether you're black, white, or brown, we all know what it feels like to lose someone. And then when you add the fact of how painful this video was to watch, someone begged for his life, when his sister talked about even while he was being beaten, he was polite and that was something that stirred me too he he no point did he even seem to get angry as he was being beaten over and over again i've actually talked to the, some of the moms across this country who've lost loved ones from police brutality as well this week and they were telling me that this has really torn them apart again because to hear him cry out for help and to cry out for his mother it's something that sat with a lot of them as well because they can only imagine what their sons were feeling in that quiet moment where they were just trying to get away, never fighting back like that, and all of it being captured on video. Um, the mom also extending sort of some grace to the police department here and the police chief, thanking them for the quick action. When you put all this together, 
it's sort of surreal to watch how these all have played out right in front of the cameras. And as you two imagine and, and said right then, imagine being in your most painful moment and having to play it out right on TV and having the grace to answer questions over and over again. I, I think it's been quite remarkable to see what this family has been able to do over the last few weeks. It is unbelievably remarkable, Ryan. You know, the feeling of grief, unless you've been through it, you can never quite fully understand how deep it goes, right, Don? How hurt, yeah. how hurtful it is. And you just can't, can't say it enough, um, you know, to have to go through this grief on the world stage, seeing this video of your loved one being beaten by police unjustly, seeing your loved ones say, what are you guys, what are you doing all this for? And, and being so polite, as um, Ryan pointed out, and then, you know, get up on that stage and speak so eloquently, answering the questions over and over again. It is, it is remarkable, the amount of strength that we are seeing on display. And I want to, you know, so much of this is about, um, so much of this is about what happened to Tyree. But Don, I would like to take a moment and read some of Tyree's own words from his photography website. They talked a lot about that at the service today, his love for photography and skateboarding. And you just really get a sense of who he is um, in, in these words. He says, um, my name is Tyree D. Nichols. I'm an aspiring photographer. Well, I mostly do this stuff for fun, but I enjoy it very much. Photography helps me look at the world in a more creative way. He goes on to say, my vision is to bring my viewers deep into what I am seeing through my eye and out through my lens. People have a story to tell. Why not capture it? instead of doing the norm and writing it down or speaking. I hope to one day let people see what I see and to hopefully admire my work based on the quality and ideals of my work. So on that note, enjoy my page and let me know what you think. Your friend, Tyree D. Nichols. I'm so glad you read that, Pamela, because it it speaks to the human being um, that he was and what everyone says about him. His mom saying, you know, my son wasn't perfect, but he was darn near perfect out of anyone. When we cover these stories, it's often we often say that there are no perfect victims, that everyone has something in their past, or they didn't comply, they didn't do this, or they didn't do that. I'm not sure. I don't believe that this is an example of that, as we are uh, watching the, the homegoing and the celebration of life ceremonies for Tyree Nichols in Memphis, uh, Tennessee. I believe it is coming down to a close. But it has been a very, very poignant afternoon, a very poignant day. And the words spoken in that pulpit, I hope they resonate with people across the country and across the world. There you have this beautiful American family um, sharing their worst moments, putting their grief out there for all to see. And what you've witnessed is pretty much what happens at most, except for the cameras and the dignitaries, at most black funerals and home-going ceremonies around the country. Beautiful words, Pamela. I'm glad that you read them. Uh, Ryan Young is standing by. All of this happens in the wake of the ongoing investigation into Tyree, Tyree Nichols' death. And now I want to get us to Shimon Prokopez and John Miller, uh, who are both joining us now. Both of you gentlemen have been following this story. You've been doing some investigative re- reporting, Shimon. Uh, and John, I'm glad that you're here uh, to give us the information on what is happening with the investigation as far as the police. We are learning that there could be charges filed over the initial police report filed in this case. So first to you, Shimon, what do you know about that? Why is that happening? Well, you heard uh, Tyree's uh, stepdad there talk about when police came to the house, when they first were told uh, about what happened uh, to Tyree and how it was all surrounded by lies, deceit, 
and trying to cover up. And that is something that is very clearly the DA is saying that they're investigating. Looking at the initial reports uh, that the police filed that has now surfaced online, uh, there is a huge discrepancy on what actually happened and what we see on the video. And so as a result of that, as a result of what the family was initially told, the DA is now investigating the documents that were filed to see essentially if police were trying to cover up what happened here. And, you know, Kamala Harris talked about this and others certainly talked about this, about how these officers were not in the pursuit of public safety. And I think those are strong words there. And then the other thing, I, I you know, listening to Reverend Al Sharpton talk about um, how these officers, these black officers, beat their brother and how, you know, so many leaders and Dr. King and how they fought for civil rights and that if it wasn't for those fights and for um, the marches and the fighting, really, to, these officers wouldn't even have the opportunity to be police officers. And I thought that was quite a moment there. And so, look, there's a lot here on this investigation that we still don't know that the district attorney is still conducting and the police, but certainly a lot of emotion today and and a lot of calls for justice and fight for justice and changes and police reform. And this also is bringing the focus also, John, back to uh, the Memphis Police Department and the Memphis Police Chief C.J. Davis. She was praised for her handling of the investigation early on. Do you think she's still being as transparent as she should be? I think she's got to walk the line between the transparency that is required by this, by a community um, and a media that's demanding answers, without breaking uh, in... in, uh, and going over in transparency without breaking the integrity of the investigation. You know, we're talking about an investigation that's into three parts. The state criminal investigation, where you see five arrests of police officers. The internal administrative investigation, where her people are still carrying that forward to say, even those who may not be arrested may have violated rules and policies of the department. They may face discipline or be fired. And, of course, this third piece, which which ultimately may end up uh, coming in the criminal side, which is the federal civil rights investigation where they were de- denying Tyree Nichols his civil rights under color of law. And as Shimon said, even the police report, if it was deliberately fabricated to contain falsehoods, could become part of a conspiracy charge under those laws. Mm-hmm. Shimon, I want to ask you, I spoke to you about some of your reporting. I know you're getting new reporting uh, as a day has moved on, but that the city of Memphis plans to release more videos in the Tyree Nichols case. What do we know about those? Well, you know, there's more body camera footage that we have not seen that belongs to officers whose names we haven't learned yet and who are under investigation. There are also those sky cameras, which has proven very important and pivotal in this investigation that showed really the brutality uh, nature of what we saw here with the beating. There could be other cameras in the neighborhood that show us perhaps this whole question about why did they stop him? What was the reason for this? This is one of the most puzzling things about this. Why were the officers so aggressive in the initial moment? So maybe there's more video along the way that shows Tyree driving. You know, the police chief told you, Don, as you remember, that they so far have not found any evidence, any indication uh, that he was driving recklessly or to justify what the police initially have said for the stop. 
And then there could be audio. You know, we still haven't heard the radio communications between these officers. And were they communicating in some other form? Because when you look at that initial stop, and John and I, John and I have talked about this, is they're all there. There are three cars that just surround him. How did they all get to that location at that moment? So maybe this audio and this other video will shed some light on that. Well, it's interesting, Shimon, because with those sky cameras, they were saying they looked at even before the incident started. And as you pointed out and as the police chief pointed out, no evidence of, of you know, this reckless driving that they pulled him over for. And as we know, that can sort of be a catch-all for anything, that your turn signal is out or, you, you know, you change lanes without using a turn signal and so on and so forth. Or if they just want to pull you over, it can be a catch-all for police officers to pull people over. But I do think it is interesting that they are releasing this, this saying they're going to other videos now, when, according to the police chief, she said, so far, no evidence of reckless driving, at least from the video evidence that they have thus far. Yeah, and that's the thing. Thus far, they don't they haven't seen that. Look, you know, they've interviewed the last statement from the police department that we got Don, was that they interviewed some 30 people, internal and external parties that they've interviewed uh, and that they still have more charges coming. And I, I assume they mean internal charges for officers. Um, we don't know exactly what what every officer reported doing, seeing to the police. Perhaps they'll shed some more light on that. The city of Memphis is trying to be transparent, they say. We, we want to get to the point where we can give the media, the press, as much as possible. But because of the internal investigations, they right now are holding back. The other key thing that, that I think that they've done here brilliantly is they've brought the family in on all of these decisions, letting them view all these videos. And the videos that are to come uh, sometime in the near future, they say the families have viewed as well. John, an attorney for the Nichols family says that everyone on that scene, from the police to the EMTs to the sheriff's deputies, they all failed Tyree Nichols, as we see in the video, right? Does the fact that so many agencies were involved and so many people were on the scene point to a larger issue with how these departments in Memphis are run? Well, I wouldn't even limit it to Memphis. I would say yeah, that, uh, that uh, you know, there's a lot of standing around at these events when people call for backup and standing around after the fact. But now it's time for a roll call of, as this beating was going on, where was the one person, the one person who never seemed to emerge, who was going to fill that duty to intervene, which is, I've seen this go too far. I need to be that voice. And this is the kind of training that's going on all over the country. You know, what we saw today was a day of mourning for Tyree Nichols. What we also saw playing in the background of that, a day of reckoning for American law enforcement, where they examined things like the culture of policing, if not policing writ large, then the culture of high-end anti-crime units that go into high-crime neighborhoods. And does that culture need to be questioned, examined? Uh, does that training need to go up? deeper questions of race in policing, especially the confusion over five black officers charged with beating a black man um, for seemingly no reason that has come into that conversation about when is race not a factor in being racist. So there's going to be a lot of conversation uh, at the highest levels of policing, um, on the grassroots of community organizers to say, where are we going here? And you saw the legislative piece come up today, which is 
Where was the George Floyd bill that was introduced by Karen Bass when she's a congresswoman, now the mayor of Los Angeles with the second largest police department mm -hmm. in the United States? So we're going to be in this conversation um, in a very deep way for a long time. And that police department has been under scrutiny recently as well. John Miller, Shimon Preocupes, thank you both uh, for sharing your insights and reporting. Don Lemon, thank you as well. Pamela, thank you for anchoring this coverage with heart and with empathy. Absolutely. It's a it pleasure is, to be. Thank you. It is a sacred duty. That is for yeah. sure, Don. Thank you. Well, up next, the extraordinary day, the White House. For the White House, lawyers pressed on the FBI's latest search for classified documents at President Biden's Delaware Beach House. And inside, the high-stakes meeting that could impact the U.S. economy and the pocketbook of every single American. Topping our politics lead today, FBI agents searched President Biden's Delaware Beach House but left empty-handed as far as we know. It's the third time federal agents have looked for classified documents of one of his properties. And the timing here is notable. Today is special counsel Robert Hur's first official day investigating Biden. As CNN's Paula Reid reports, even though no additional classified documents were found today, President Biden's legal battles are far from over. Federal agents searching for classified documents at President Biden's Rehoboth Beach House as part of the ongoing special counsel investigation into possible mishandling of classified materials. The White House counsel's office today emphasized Biden's cooperation. We've been fully cooperative. The president's been fully cooperative. His lawyers are in direct discussions with the Justice Department, and that's going to continue. This is the second FBI search of a property belonging to the president in just two weeks and the third since agents visited his former think tank office where classified documents were discovered in November. On January 20th, the FBI also conducted a similar search, also without a warrant, of his Wilmington home. After searching that residence for nearly 13 hours, investigators left with what Biden's lawyers described as six items consisting of documents with classification markings and surrounding materials. After nearly four hours in Rehoboth today, no documents marked classified were found. But Biden's lawyers said the Justice Department did take some materials and handwritten notes that appear to relate to his time as vice president. The president has tried to downplay the matter. There's no there there. And his team has worked to differentiate it from the investigation into former President Trump, where prosecutors are looking at possible obstruction in addition to his handling of classified material. I have no regrets. I'm following what the lawyers have told me they want me to do. It's exactly what we're doing. Even as some Democrats have expressed surprise at Biden's retention of classified documents. When that information is found, it diminishes uh, the stature of any person who is in possession of it, because it's not supposed to happen. To announce the appointment of Robert Herr. Today marks day one for Robert Herr as special counsel to oversee the investigation. This appointment underscores for the public the department's commitment to both independence and accountability in particularly sensitive matters. But with a steady flow of new developments and details the White House did not disclose, the issue has become a political liability for the president. The administration hasn't been transparent about what's going on with President Biden's uh, possession of classified documents.
There have now been dozens of classified documents found at the president's home and former office, and CNN has learned the FBI is still combing through the material it collected in its Wilmington search. And Pam, a short time ago, the White House would not say if the FBI has conducted other searches of additional locations. So it's likely we're going to be having more developments on this case in the coming days and weeks. Mm, that is a lingering question. Paula Reed, thank you so much. And just ahead for you, the Republicans who might be close to launching presidential campaigns to challenge Donald Trump in 2024. Is it too soon? We'll discuss. More now in the politics lead. A source tells CNN former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley could announce a 2024 White House bid in the coming weeks. Haley would become the first Republican to challenge Donald Trump for her party's nomination. So let's jump right into this. So we were all just talking there during the break. The why. What is the benefit, David, for Nikki Haley to jump in this early against Donald Trump? Well, we're talking about it right now, aren't we? Right? Exactly. A lot, of, a, lot of, a lot of earned free media that she can't <laughs> afford to pay for otherwise. I mean, I think that's, you know, the, 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 the thinking in her part would be she gets out early, she kind of puts a marker down and says, look, I'm an alternative to um, Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis, right? So I'm a third boy here. That's, that's I think, her clear path. And she's probably out banging the bushes trying to make some money, raise some bucks. Except that David and I also, we're giving everybody a big peek into what we talk about <laughs> during the breaks. We're, we're discussing uh, that. I mean, he is a Republican strategist. I spoke to uh, to another one before coming on saying that the sort of thinking right now, and it is so incredibly early, mm-hmm. so who really knows? But the thinking right now is that a Nikki Haley takes votes not away from Donald Trump, but potentially takes votes away from Ron DeSantis, which might be why Donald Trump is saying, come on in, come on in, the water's warm. Because how did Donald Trump become the nominee in 2016? A lot of ways. But one of the ways is that he had so many opponents, they all split the vote for the Republican nomination and he ran away with it. Yeah. So it wouldn't be surprising then with Mike Pompeo, who's also giving hints uh, that he's going to jump in the race soon, saying his recent visits to Iowa, New Hampshire have not been random. Um, You would think that Trump wouldn't mind him hopping in either and some others. Right. And even talking about either Pompeo or Haley, that may inject some enthusiasm with the moderate Republican base, because right now, as we know, she's going to uh, potentially give that speech that she is going to run on the 15th. Uh, That you know, puts down the gauntlet right now where Republicans are going to have to choose. Are they going the moderate route or are they going the Trump route? And that's your congressional Republicans. That's all your, also your Republican donors. So right now, officially, we're, we're going to start seeing who they're going to coalesce around. But it's still early. It's but very it's still early. early, but also yeah. money is always part of this, right? I mean, fundraising. Yeah, I mean, one, Donald Trump wants as many people in the race as possible because that fares well for Mm -hmm. him. I think when people run for president, they think about, can I actually win? But then there's also the number two slot on the ticket as well. (laughs) And getting your name out early, kind of defining yourself as a candidate when you're out ahead of the pack and not competing for airtime is a good opportunity. I do think, though, Nikki Haley, has her spectrum of politics has really span the the gauntlet like she clearly has been a pro-Trump type of candidate most recently but when she was governor she was a conservative governor of South Carolina but she still can pull some of those moderates so getting out of head trying to get some of those moderates that just don't want Trump but also don't want Biden um, to go into her pot is a and looks at DeSantis as Trump 2.0 gives them a place to go right now as the field is still kind of developing. She's yeah. got a, she's got a little bit of time. Uh, my friend Mike Pompeo was out on his book tour. 
Yeah. Uh, I saw him here in town the other night, and uh, Governor DeSantis on the book tour, and they're all going to be going to the same places. They're all going to be going to Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina. So she may not enjoy the spotlight for too long. Yeah. Um, just uh, by yourself. They're giving some strong hints that they're going to be part of it soon. All right. So let's talk about the war chest, because that's mm. always part of the calculation here. This is according to filings. Trump's entire political operation is sitting on $81 million in cash. That includes all the PACs. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and his supporting PACs have more than $75 million. Nikki Haley's PAC has raised about $2 million. How much will money actually matter in a presidential primary against Trump, Dana, who we should note, uh, that is under multiple investigations, including relating to his role in January 6th. We can't have a conversation, I think, about Trump running without noting that. Money always matters until it doesn't, (laughs) until you have somebody who is so well-known, a la the Donald Trump of 2016, uh, who didn't really have to spend a a lot of money, uh, at least in the primary season. But look, those those numbers that you just showed, the 81 million, I mean, that is a huge mm-hmm. war chest in his pack. What he hasn't done since he actually became a candidate again is raised yeah. very yeah. much money, like nine million dollars, I believe, in the six weeks since he announced. Mm-hmm. And my understanding is that because his his email, his fundraising list of lists have kind of atrophied, that he spent so much time going to the well with the with the names on the fundraising list that he had to raise the 81 million mm-hmm. that now they've got to kind of reboot and it right. takes some time to right. do that. And, and the pack money can't be spent, you know, certain money is all siloed, right? That's for right. Everybody at home, you know, it's, it's incredibly arcane what the money can be spent for. Right. And so some money can be spent for staff. Some money can be spent attacking other people. It, it, it's, it's really highly regulated. And so as Dana correctly points out, raising that new money is super important, right? That new, that new dollars that can be used, the hard dollars can be used for, for this campaign, they haven't been so so successful at, and mm-hmm. that's why Donald Trump did a a small ball version of what he usually does. There's no giant, you know, uh, auditorium uh, arena that costs two three hundred thousand dollars. It's much cheaper to go to a hotel ballroom someplace and, and and do the retail. I think you know what one of the things that Donald Trump you just saw was this local this retail visit. Go to the ice cream shop, shake hands. What people don't remember is that where do most people get their news in America? From their local news. And local news mm-hmm. plays the heck out of that. I guarantee you that ice cream visit got played on every station a hundred times. And people said, what do you think about the president? What do you think about Donald Trump? And that is a home run. And so you can do lots of those kind of things. They don't cost a lot of money, but they get a lot of, a lot of traction. But having that nest egg to start and continue this campaign is so significant. When you, so many candidates, if you look at the 2020 uh, cycle for the Democrats, so many candidates dropped out, a la our vice president, uh, Elizabeth Warren, so, because they could not raise I the money. I want to just press pause for a second because the House Speaker, Kevin McCarthy, just walked out of his meeting uh, from the White House. Let's listen. Do you think that he will? Look, I don't want to put any words in his mouth. We had an hour conversation about this that I thought was a very good discussion, and we, we walked out saying we would continue the discussion. And I think there is an opportunity here to come to an agreement on both sides. And I think that's the best for the, I think that's what the American people want. Look, they want us to be responsible and sensible about this. And that's exactly the way we're handling it. I told the president I would like to see if we can come to an agreement long before the deadline and we can start working on other things. Mr. Speaker, where should those, where should those budget cuts come from right now? Medicare and Social Security, the White House insists Republicans want to cut. What cuts do you want? Well, to let me be clear about that. And I've been clear many times. No, we're not talking about that. And 
to really be able to do this right, I'm not going to negotiate this in the press, right? I respect the conversation we had together, and we will continue that. Mr. Speaker, you said today that you have a big plan. When are you going to share that big plan? Look, I, I think the President and I have talked about a lot of different ideas, and we'll work to see if we can come to an agreement. Look, I, I, know you, I know you all have a job to do, but I don't think we'll come to an agreement if I negotiate with you. I think the respectful way to do it is to talk to the President as we did right now for more than an hour. We both walked away. We have different perspectives, but we both laid out some of our vision of where we'd want to get to. And I believe after laying both of out, I can see where we can find common ground. I think the American public would appreciate that. And we, look, I've been very, I've been very clear. The current path we're on, we cannot sustain. We've got to change the directory to put ourselves on a path to balance. How we get there will be our discussions. Do you have a chance to talk with President Biden about supporting Ukraine? And can those budget cuts impact uh, support for Ukraine from the United Look, States? What we talked about today was about moving forward and how we move through on a debt ceiling and how we get an agreement. I believe if we're able to get to an agreement, we could have a funding agreement for the next two years. You won't see omnibuses anymore. You'll see the Senate and the House actually do the job the American public has elected them to do, to walk through the appropriation process, which is the manner in which to do it, where the American public can see where we're spending our money. And I think there's a lot of savings we can find for the American taxpayer. Look, this is the hardworking taxpayers, and I know there's a lot of places where there's wasteful Washington spending. And I find that we can find an agreement there. What's your reaction to China warning you against visiting Taiwan? Any reaction to China's warning against visiting Taiwan for you? I, I don't think China can tell me where I can go at any time at any place. No, no. Listen. The President and I are trying to find a way that we can work together and we will continue to do that. I'm oh, sorry, yes, sir. Parents raise their kids across this country right now, and they see this national debt at thirty-one trillion dollars, growing and growing. Worried that their kids' future is going to be buried into that mounting debt. What do you tell those parents watching right now? I'll tell those parents right there. That's why I'm here. That's why I'm here to make sure their children do not have and continue this debt. If you just look, if we continue the trajectory that we're on in the next ten years, we'll spend eight trillion dollars just on interest. Eight trillion dollars just on interest. What that means, though, too, because of the spending that has been going on, is that's why you have inflation. America's strength will shrinken. Everyone has always said it doesn't matter what occupation you're in, whether you're U.S. general or not. The greatest threat to America is our debt. Our debt is now at 120 percent of GDP, meaning our debt is larger than our economy. At the this is higher than at any time in American history. And it's higher at any time in American history when the revenues that are coming into government are higher than any other time. So we've got a lot of revenue, we just have a spending problem. And that's where I want to find that we can find common ground. Yes. Can you commit that the U.S. will not default on its obligations? Look, if I look at anything and you want to equate this, if you have a child and you give them a credit card and they spend that limit, you're responsible for paying that credit card. But the responsible thing, too, is going forward, not just raise the limit, 
but look at how you're spending. You know, I look at Chuck Schumer, he's never passed a real budget, he's never passed any appropriation bills, but he puts a $1.7 trillion omnibus coming through. The American public doesn't want that. This is their hard-earned money. They don't want government to take more of it, they don't want it to waste it. So now is a moment in time, we've got five more months. I've just walked out having an hour conversation with this president that I tell you in perspective was a good conversation. No agreements, no promises, except we will continue this conversation. I want to continue it on behalf of the American people, on behalf of the parents, on behalf of every taxpayer here, that we put ourselves on a trajectory that makes America stronger, secure, and balanced. You both have already asked. Who has not asked a question? Yes, sir. What credibility do conservatives and Republicans have when they talk about reducing de deficits? That's a great that question. Previous administrations, um, when Republicans had control of both the White House and Congress, uh, ran up the bill. Okay, let's just go by the, the sheer facts and figures, all right? So Republicans were in the majority for eight years, and then the Democrats came in the majority for the last four years. So in the last four years, the Democrats have increased discretionary spending by 30%, over $400 billion. When the Republicans were in majority twice that long, the discretionary spending didn't go up $1, it went down $10 billion. So I think that the, <laughs> the credibility lasts easily with the Republicans. If you want to argue about from a place where the, pres the, the past president, um, if you continue down the same path, this presidency will spend and put us in debt much greater than before. So look, I'm not in a place that I'm going to point fingers. I'm in a place of being the Speaker of the House. My role right now is to make sure we have a sensible, responsible ability to raise the debt ceiling but not continue this runaway spending. This is a moment in time that for all American households, Every family does this, every business does this, every state government, every county government. When they have spent too much, they rein back, look where waste is at, look where investments would be better, and sit down and talk in an adult fashion. That's the conversation I just had with the president, and that's the conversation I want to continue so we can come to an agreement. Mr. Speaker, would you accept a condition to study spending cuts, or would you need actual spending cuts to Look, I don't need a commission to tell me where there's waste, fraud, and abuse. I don't need a commission to tell us where we're spending too much. I don't need a commission to tell us we're a $31 trillion debt. Nobody needs a commission in the American public to tell us that we have spent too much, just like any family. So we don't need a commission to tell us to do our job that the American public elected us to do. For the next five weeks and hopefully, it, or five months, hopefully it doesn't take that long, we can sit down and solve this problem. So you do have to Yes, ma'am. I did not talk to him about classified documents. I came down here to talk about the debt ceiling and our spending, and that's what we spent our time on. Mr. Speaker, uh, the Congress make more strong bills for North Korea's deregulation. Are you going to 
more strong bills for that. You know, come to another press conference. Right now is the conversation about mine with the president when it cards to debt ceiling and spending. The White House yes, Did you need details the budget, to the plans that you want in spending cuts with the president? Details with the president. Did you give them details? Look, we talked in different perspectives. It was our first conversation about this. We talked about a lot of different ideas. And look, I don't want to give any false impressions. He gave me his perspective. I gave him our perspective. But I believe in hearing both perspectives, like anything else, be it business, be it in family, be it in relationships, that you can find common ground. There's nothing in there of me walking away that does not believe at the end of the day we can come to an agreement that makes America stronger, puts us on a path to balance, and exactly what the American people are asking us to do. It's our responsibility to do it. Last question. Even if you do reach an agreement with the president, are you concerned that members of your own party are not going to go along with it? No. Uh, we just met today at a conference. Look, the Republicans are very united. I think, had we not been elected to the majority, we wouldn't be having this discussion. The American people would not have an advocate here to curb the waste in the spending that's happening. So I think this is a positive. This is exactly how government in America is designed, that you have to find compromise. The American people made a decision to have the Republicans in power in the House. The Democrats have a small majority in the Senate, and the Democrats have a president. But we're all Americans, and we all have to work together. But the one thing I do know, our debt is too high. We have waste in our government. And we need to sit down together in a responsible way to put us on a path to balance that will make the future of America stronger so the next century will be ours. Thank you all for the job. That's House Speaker Kevin McCarthy speaking after meeting President Biden at the White House. More of our coverage next in the Situation Room with Wolf Blitzer. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.